0: Power. What does it mean to be powerful, to have power? In America, we praise people we perceive as powerful. Powerful people in America are often people who have money or influence or both. So what happens to people who feel like they have neither? Or what's worse, when one group of people look at another group and view them as lesser than because they have no influence, no power? As part of WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative this year, we're looking at back at the Kerner Commission report that was produced by the experts convened by President Johnson to determine the root causes of racial uprisings that swept dozens of U.S. cities in the summer of 1967. And today, on Detroit Today, we want to talk about power and powerlessness as they played into unrest in 1967 and how they factor into society and politics today. Joining me for this conversation is Mark Crewman, who's a professor of history and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Citizenship right here at Wayne State University, and Stephen Ward, who's an associate professor at the University of Michigan. He's a historian in the Social Theory and Practice Program, and he's jointly appointed in the Department of Afro- Amer- Afro-American and African Studies. But I want to begin by reading from the Kerner Report regarding power in 1967. It said, quote, The frustrations of powerlessness have led some Negroes to the conviction that there is no effective alternative to violence as a means of achieving redress of grievances and of, quote, moving the system. These frustrations are reflected in alienation and hostility toward the institutions of law and government and the white society which controls them. And in the reach toward racial consciousness and solidarity reflected in the slogan, Black Power. A new mood has sprung up among Negroes, particularly among the young, in which self-esteem and enhanced racial pride are replacing apathy and submission to the system. Those words are written in 1969 by the Kerner Commission. I think if you wrote them today, they wouldn't be terribly uh, inaccurate. And so that's where I want to begin this conversation. Uh, Again, my guests are Mark Crumann. Professor of History and founder, uh, Founding Director of the Center for Study of Citizenship at Wayne State, and Stephen Ward, an Associate Professor at the University of Michigan in Social Theory and Practice Programs, jointly appointed in the Department of Afro- Afro-American and African Studies. Stephen Ward, I want to start with you. Uh, what does that quote uh, from 1967 sort of resonate for you uh, historically, but also Put it in current context. Uh, black Lives Matter, I think, uh, is, is the thing that immediately comes to my mind when I read those words.
1: There are a few things in that, in that statement that you read um, that signal the, the context in which it was written, in which all this was taking place. That uh, concern with violence, the reference to the sentiments um, and the energies of young black people, and reference to black power. So we we need to take those um, at hand and really understand those to understand what was being said then in the context, and then allow that for, to be a basis for thinking about those were those sentiments uh, today. And and I would be um, cautious about trying to draw uh, too direct of a line. Right, it's um, fifty years different. Exactly, it's fifty Lots years. Lots of things are yeah. not the same. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, And one of the things that was happening then, which that statement refers to, and which is the major context for the uprisings in Detroit and elsewhere, for the Kerner Commission, for its report and the response to it, was the emergence of the Black Power Movement. So we have a a popular um, understanding of the Black Power Movement as symbolized by perhaps the most well-known group, most well-recognized group, the Black Panther Party. Not not very well known. And other symbols and images, the raised fists, uh, Afros and other um, cultural uh, expressions of, of black empowerment. Um, but beyond those, or including those, the Black Power Movement was a movement that emerged out of the Civil Rights Movement yeah. in the mid-1960s. And when I say out of it, that means that it um, was carrying forward some of what the Civil Rights Movement was about, and it was rejecting and challenging and going beyond something the Civil Rights Movement was about. And one of those was a rejection of nonviolence. Um, and so before the uprisings and, and happening along with uprisings was a lot of political thought, writings, and um, speeches and expressions from black power activists rejecting nonviolence. And um, the debate really was nonviolence or self-defense, but in the mainstream media and other people's minds, it was about nonviolence or violence. And so the rebellions—and and I, I know— um, riot or rebellion is something you've dealt with and will continue to be dealt with. Yeah, we keep talking um, about right. that. Um, so I'm going to say now, and I'm happy to talk more about it later, that I think rebellions is the correct word. But so the rebellions were seen by many as expressions of violence in that violence or nonviolence debate, when in fact in the movement it was nonviolence or self defense.
0: Um, so that, that's, there's measures of distortion and different perspectives sure. that, that are at play. So yeah. Uh, let's talk about this theme of power. Though uh, Black Power was an an assertion, a sort of uh, appropriation of power by people who felt locked out of the system, and so I suppose in that way it is similar to something like Black Lives Matter, where uh, where you now see young African Americans or African Americans really of all ages saying uh, we are powerless to stop. Within the system, this this uh, violence by by police officers against innocent African Americans, and therefore we're going to organize outside the system to try to appropriate that power for ourselves, to try to figure out a way outside the system to get something done. So I, I'm not so
1: I'm not sure yes, how much you can I see. <laughs> <That's fine.
0: laughs> I'm not sure how much I see the Black
1: Lives Matter phrase, uh, movement, and organization and related hands up and so forth, so much as a reflection as a, as a statement of powerlessness uh-huh. or, but rather as a, a statement about um, putting pressure on those in power, but in some ways claiming one's own power. Yeah. So the Black Power movement a way to understand what it, understand what it was trying to do as an active movement is, is the word empowerment, actively trying to claim spaces of empowerment. And one of them was political power, political power, right? Electoral power um, and then actual political power. And the movement did help bring that um, in the form of the election of Coleman Young in Detroit, black mayors in other cities and so forth. Um, But also about a cultural affirmation um, at the heart of the black power movement were ethics of um, self-determination and and collective responsibility and action. So those things are part of that that moment. And I think the current moment draws from those some ways – concretely, specifically, intentionally, some ways not, be, just because of those 50 years you, sure. you reference, right? Sure. So the people who are calling for Black Lives Matter and who are mounting these protests grew up with black mayors and black police chiefs, right, and city council members and CEOs and others. So their world experience and worldview is shaped by circumstances which are not only different from 50 years ago, but were created by the struggles of 50 and 60 and 40 years ago. Right, right. So that, to me, is the important a basis of the important connection between the two periods.
0: Yeah. Uh, professor Crewman, uh, professor of history at uh, Wayne State, founding director of the Center for Study of Citizenship. Uh, talk about the, 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 the sort of role that power plays uh, sort of historically in these movements, uh, the sense of power and powerlessness. But also I'm curious what you think about Um, the the, the, the role that power plays in the sense of citizenship and what we can do as individuals or what our responsibilities are as individuals in this society?
2: Well, I think that it it might be useful to start with uh, today. March 30th is the 100, now I'm, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> which anniversary are you it's the
2: anniversary good? of the adoption of the 15th amendment okay, in, yeah. uh, in 1870 mm-hmm. so and that, and, uh, yeah. it, and in that sense uh, there is a similarity that I see in both in, in the 60s and in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the sense that they are uh, demands for uh, acknowledgement of full citizenship, yeah. and I would I would suggest that that even in the uh, in the Black Power movement, a more of a, a nationalist movement, that it still was about the building upon the uh, assertion of of full citizenship through political action, I think it's important to, uh, to place the uprisings in the context of the Voting Rights Act. Sure. Uh, because it's about, while there may be a sense of powerlessness, it may in fact have been heightened by the possibilities that were offered, or it seemed to be offered by the Voting Rights Act and by political power. So I think that that's where yeah. uh, that we need to get at that juxtaposition if we're going to explain the uh, the uprisings as well.
0: And do you do you get a sense that people? today have a greater sense of the effectiveness of that voting power than than they did before? Or do they have less of a sense of the effectiveness of that voting power? I mean, we see sort of conflicting messages about how important it is to vote, how effective it can be uh, at making change. Do, do we think differently about that now than we did 50 years ago or 146 years ago?
2: I I don't know that I, I think that in the end, voting rights have always been viewed, at least since the uh, era right before the Civil War, as uh, in some ways the crucial right, the right that underlay the rest and that would be used to uh, protect the rest of, of one's rights yeah. and, and the mark of, of full citizenship and I mean, that was Frederick Douglass's argument for the four voting rights immediately after the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that it goes in and out. There is often a sense of of detachment that and apathy and alienation. And you can uh, can see that in the, Withdrawal from voting, not just of minorities, but uh, we've seen a reemergence of uneducated, uh, blue collar, white middle aged men uh, returning to uh, political action. So I think that voting. And, and look at the reaction to the, the Trump campaign. Major efforts on the part of Muslim communities sure. and Hispanic communities to apply for citizenship and to get the right to vote because it's seen as a way of protecting themselves. Of protecting their
0: other rights. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stephen Ward, uh, I'm curious about uh, your sense of the role of the sense of black empowerment in the 2016 presidential uh, election cycle. this has been uh, this is sort of an odd uh, and really unique situation where we are coming off of eight years with a black president in in power. Um, in in some ways, I think the question is, how does the, the, the sort of power that put that person in the role, which of course was black and white power together, how does that sort of morph in the post-Obama era uh, to sort of attach itself to, to some other person or cause that may, uh, that may achieve the things that, that they thought might be achieved with, with, uh, with the current president? You know, I, I'm not sure. I think I'm not
1: sure in two ways. One, I'm not sure that I have the you know a, a good sense of all the ways, all the different components of that that pretty large question. Um, a, you know, Mark actually may have more um, more direct thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm, we're laughing because he, he shot a look at me. <laughs> um, but I'm also not sure because I think it's it's a matter of we will see. what we'll, it's being played out, and we'll, you know, so it's kind of hard. It seems to me to. To um, predict. And, and it, it, it may very well play out in ways that we can't really anticipate or that we wouldn't be looking for. Yeah. Um, I'll say I agree with, with Mark's point about um, the Voting Rights Act, and I'll say other things as part of the mid 60s context, yeah. um, which are the context for the rebellions in the Kerner Report, um, is that sense of possibility um, that black people in general and particularly young black people saw and experienced political possibility and, and otherwise. Um, and I think that's important to understand that moment, but also as a, as a way to think about the question you're asking about what is going to be happening is happening in our own moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll say specifically, Mark talked about what voting meant in 1870 um, and in 1966, um, 67, 68. And it meant something different in those two moments, and it means something different now. So I think we should just be a, this is not a direct answer, but a way right. to think about the answer. We should be attuned to
0: and look for the ways of We can see what it means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've got to take a break here, raise a little money for the station, keep this show on the air. Uh, When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about power. What is power? Who has it? Who has lost it? And how does power affect our lives and political tension in America today? And we want to take your calls, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guests today are Mark Kruman, who is a professor of history and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Citizenship here at Wayne State University, and Stephen Ward, who's an associate professor at the University of Michigan. He's a historian in the Social Theory and Practice Program, and he's jointly appointed in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. We are talking about power uh, as part of WTDT's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative this year. We're looking back at the Kerner Commission report issued in 1967 after uprisings around the country about uh, power and powerlessness and how they played into that unrest. Uh, Give us a call if you want to join the conversation. What do you think power is? Who do you think is powerful. Uh, who do you think has lost power? Do you believe that some people are losing power here in America? And how. Does power affect our lives and political tensions in America? 313-577-1019 to join that conversation. That's 313-577-1019. Professor Kruman, I'm going to start with uh, you, this segment, and uh, ask you the same question that I was asking uh, Stephen before about the, the power in the context of this particular presidential election, uh, the people who feel like they are losing it, it seems like, are defining the polls on either end of the spectrum. Uh, supporters of Donald Trump, uh, I think, would say that they have lost uh, power in, in the sense of uh, the ability to control their economic destinies. Bernie Sanders supporters might say something very similar. Uh, that seems to be a very common theme.
2: I think that they're that this sense of powerlessness a sense of growing a, a reality of growing economic inequality i think has uh has fed into uh um, support for both of those uh, candidates i think the sanders phenomena though in in certain ways is uh, drawing on a a very different demographic, yeah. uh, with uh, people who in fact have often not been hurt by uh, inequality, young folks and also uh, affluent uh, uh, white liberals. Uh-huh. So I, I think that uh, that in fact and and what Donald Trump is doing. Is appealing to voters or people who are often had abandoned the system to reassert their authority uh, which often and I think it it's important to point out in the context uh often with uh all sorts of not just innuendo, but direct statements that are racist. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I mean, it is a sort of nativist, populist message that that he's, uh, endorsing, and that's who that's who he's attracting. Uh, the sort of scapegoating that goes on there is really remarkable.
2: But more than racist, I I think that there, I'm more than nativist. Mm-hmm. I would I would include racist as well. Racist in the and, and yeah, if sure. you look at at Afri- the treatment of African American protesters in at Trump rallies, yeah. I think that that race is. Uh, is a crucial phenomenon because Trump often describes the protester, no matter what the protester looked like, as big and threatening. (laughs) Yes,
0: right. Yeah. No, there's that sort of uh, imagery that that gets invoked uh, a lot there. Uh, Stephen Ward, I want to go back to uh, 1967, and the Kerner Commission report, uh, you were we were talking during the break about the sort of end of that report and a forecast uh, mm-hmm. that it, that it that it embraced. Um, talk about what that you feel like that forecast means fifty years later.
1: Okay, um, first I'll say quickly we can add to the. Trump campaign uh, particularly sexist yeah,
0: well, um. yeah, right. No kidding. Um, right right <laughs> so especially today after today is uh, after his campaign manager is facing uh, you know uh, criminal charges for assaulting a, right. a woman I mean I think that sort of epitomizes the kind of rhetoric and and uh, ideas that have come out of that campaign yeah. so
1: the um, the report uh so we think of it as experts, right? I and mean, we it was panelled as a group of experts. But if um, if we look at who was on the, the uh, commission and the, and the various subcommittees which which advised it, um, the experts were mostly from the, the elite of American society, whether political elite, economic elite, and so forth. Um, so there's a particular perspective and angle of vision, I say, from which they're approaching, um, and we can see that I think in the perhaps the most famous statement. Um, that is re- restated re- rearticulated from the report it's actually in the beginning it states one of the conclusions it's in the summary of report of the report, which is in the beginning of the publication uh, and it, it says this is our basic conclusion: our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate, and unequal and I try I tried to un- emphasize moving because you, if we think and that that statement has been accepted as um, clear eyed, sober penetrating assessment of what was happening then and a a way to measure to what extent we have we have achieved what the current commission called for right um but there's something under there which we should take cognizance of in 1967-68 why would they say we're moving um this is a moment where you could argue that of more than any other moment in american history the country was had been moving towards um racial equality because of the the Voting Rights Act, which Mark referenced, because of the Civil Rights Act the year before in 64, because the, 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 the um, structures of Jim Crow were finally being challenged because of two decades of the Civil Rights Movement. And I'm saying two decades, two and a half decades, seeing the Civil Rights Movement as beginning during World War II. So by many measures, um, you could see that this was the opposite of what they're saying. And I think the way they said that, one reflects the perspective from which they were coming from, um, which was they were, had not been mindful of the... Um, deep-rooted problems that the uprisings refer, um, expose. Um, but also there's two historical components to that. One is the Black Power Movement, which we talked about, which was the, the context in which it was happening. And the Black Power Movement was um, moving beyond civil rights calls for inclusion in society, but really cr- calling for the empowerment of black people, including independent communities and so forth. The second important historical context is the transformation of U.S. cities, part of the reason why they could, they saw that the country was moving into societies was because these uprisings had happened in cities. Yes. And through most of American history, particularly the late 90s, or early t- first part of the 20th century, cities were seen as sites of opportunity. This is where people came to realize the proverbial American dream. And the uprisings were showing that to be... A lie showing exposing that
0: for for African Americans in particular yes that that these this was not paying off in the way that it had for for other groups exactly and so that's why they
1: could say now we're really coming to something that which we did not didn't think that we would we could see Um, and that has important um, ramifications for our understanding what has happened in the fifty years since, because American cities have transformed quite a bit
0: yeah um, let 's talk about that that transformation, which is an economic transformation in in many ways that money uh, that used to exist in cities uh, has left it uh, it, it never uh, provided the same kind of opportunity for African Americans that it did uh, for others, but in general, that sort of economic sense of power and powerlessness has, I think, come to define us a little more 50 years later than it even did uh, in 1967. Professor Krumman?
2: Well, I think that the the rising economic inequality, which has always been a fact of life for African Americans, uh, increasingly, has had an impact on uh, on especially white men. Yeah. And and the lack of movement in real wages, the growing disparity of wealth uh, becomes a uh, a marker that the system that we can't win. Yeah. Uh, the other part that I, I think is uh, is important in, in terms of powerlessness is the uh, the mass incarceration of African American men, uh, which uh, Stephen would be better to talk about its uh, its origins than than I. Uh, but there clearly aspects of the implementation and enforcement of law, the enactment of laws that were racially disparate. So I think that, and if you talk about powerlessness, uh, it it becomes embodied in in that in that world yeah Um,
0: this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET I'm Stephen Henderson my guests are Mark Kruman who's a professor of history and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Citizenship at Wayne State University Uh, I should also say that uh, that Center's annual conference is Thursday, March 31st at 8 a.m., and the theme this year is Gender, Sexuality, and Citizenship. Um, I'm also joined by Stephen Ward, who is an associate professor at the University of Michigan. He's an historian in the Social Theory and Practice program and has a joint appointment in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. I should also say that Stephen Ward uh, is uh, the director of the Semester in Detroit. Uh, program, which brings University of Michigan students down to Detroit to work in nonprofits and all kinds of other really interesting things uh, each year. We are talking about power, uh, who has power, who doesn't, who has gained power, who has lost it. Uh, We're talking about it in the context of the Kerner Commission report from 1967, issued after uprisings in several cities around uh, the country. Let's go to the phones here. Uh, And if you want to join the conversation, give us a call 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. Richard in Bloomfield Hills, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Hey, uh, Good morning. Uh-huh. I've listened to the show, and one of the things that I haven't heard discussed is the impact on individual power of the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. Um, I'd like
0: to hear you guys discuss that. Yeah. Uh, Richard, thank you very much uh, for calling and and bringing that up. Professor Kruman, I'll start with you. Does Citizens United, which, of course, empowers corporations uh, in the electoral context, uh, gives them more ability to to send money to candidates, is the correlating uh, sort of dynamic a loss of individual power?
2: I think that it certainly has contributed to a a, a sense that uh, that one has no power, that corporate interests are expressing expressing themselves through the uh, amounts of money that they're giving to candidates and uh, political action committees. And I think that one of the interesting aspects of the Trump campaign is that it, it, it was about, in certain ways, empowering people who sat outside of that donor class that was especially important in the Republican party but also important in the in the Democratic party yeah. as well.
0: Well, I mean, that's one of the things you see Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders saying simultaneously is that the system is rigged by big donors, and that I, if, uh, if I'm elected, will tilt against uh, that. And in some ways, they both are operating outside that system, uh, not accepting big corporate donations. Uh, uh, Trump is, is self-financed. Uh, Bernie Sanders has sort of eschewed corporate uh, uh, contributions. Um, but that's one of the things that sort of brings their voters together in a, in a way, right? Well,
2: there's there is that sense that there the every mess. every small donation to Sanders uh, will help make another step toward what he calls a a, a political revolution that yeah. will uh, overturn corporate power and uh, will lead to uh, a genuine change. I think that the uh, there were a lot of predictions with citizens united that it was not going to have a huge effect because businesses presumably uh, had customers who were yeah. liberal centrists and conservative right. in fact though uh it appears as if the uh, the amount of of business money going into uh into politics without transparency Uh, which I think is one of the greatest problems is the absence of transparency in all of this. Yeah. All right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back,
0: we're going to conclude our conversation about power. Uh, Stay with us on Detroit Today. Stay on the phones, 313-577-1019. Talk to us about who's powerful, who's not. And again, go to WDET.org and help us keep this program and others like it on the air. We'll be back on Detroit today. you listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guests are Mark Crewman, who's a professor of history and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Citizenship at Wayne State University, and Stephen Ward, who's an associate professor at the University of Michigan, historian in the social theory and practice program, and has a joint appointment in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. We're talking about power. Who has power? Who has does not have power who feels powerful who do we feel has power in our society and who is powerless Uh, we're talking about it in the context of a program that we're doing with the detroit journalism cooperative this year we're looking back at the kerner commission report written after uprisings in several u.s cities if you want to join the conversation talk to us about what your sense of power is Who is powerful in our society? Who does not have power? Uh, Have we seen shifts in who is powerful and who is not in our society? 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019 to join that conversation. I want to talk really quickly here about the difference between uh, equality and equity and how that difference plays out in who feels powerful Uh, I think that's a a sort of interesting concept in all of this Uh, and and one of the the narratives that that sort of rears its head particularly uh, in an economic sense is what's fairness uh, and what's uh, sort of equal uh, and are those two things uh, in in conflict Uh, Professor Ward I'm going to start with you so the equality has a has a
1: um a deep history, right? It's been used in a lot of ways in contexts. um racial equality is perhaps the most um familiar but, but others as well. Um and in within the context of social movements. E- equity seems to me doesn't have quite the same uh familiarity it's sort invaders. of a weaker word right it, right <laughs> right it has it doesn't present itself with such so much you know power in behind which meet to, makes it kind of hard to see how they um we should see them as relating to each other uh, but a way that i would suggest we think about that is is to think of what we mean by power um because we've been talking about power in the more, more familiar and formal ways of electoral power um and we probably i don't know if we've specifically stated it but we've been thinking about it in terms of um the standard way we think about power of Of power to to exercise control over um, or disperse or dispense of resources, political resources, economic resources. But there are other ways we could think about power, and particularly in our own 21st century um, environment. Uh, We could think about uh, smaller nodes of power of of individuals working together in collectives and communities to create power, not for the purpose of dispensing over resources of power in that way, but for creating the type of environment, societies, and if we can be a little bold creating the types of societies that we want Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and, and I'll mention one thing that's uh, an event happening in the city coming up April 7th through April 10th is the North American Social Solidarity Economy Forum will be holding its uh, meeting conference here uh-huh. um, which will be a space where people will be talking about Different types of economic activities on this local, small-scale basis, which is not seeing economic development as a goal, but is putting human resor- human, um, human and social relationships at the center, at the fore, and that's really, I think, an important fundamental shift in how we think about power how and we think our about society. Power. Sure. The w- and I'll mention the website is sse-na.org for the National North American Social Solidarity Economy Forum. A press release for it will be coming out Friday, but you can go to the website sse. N A org. Okay.
0: Uh, I also want to welcome uh WDET Sandra Swoboda to this studio. Uh, she's here to talk about some charts online that we'll have at WDET.org that explain this topic through her series, Detroit by the Number. Sandra, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Stephen.
0: All right. So what, what will the listeners learn uh, if they go to the website?
3: Well, we wanted to use, find one data point to measure power. And the thing that we settled on was African-American representation in the state legislature. It's part of our Detroit by the Numbers series. And we wanted to look at whether the percentage of African-American representatives and state senators matched the percentage of the African-American population in Michigan. Right. So we've got these charts. They're at WDET.org. I also just tweeted them, and they're on WDET's Facebook page, so people can take a look.
0: And wh- what are we finding when we look at that at that number?
3: Well, Stephen, I should make everybody go <laughs> to right, the page. You don't want <laughs> to spill it. No. <laughs> but I mean, are, let me
0: let me take a guess. I'm uh, kidding. The numbers don't match.
3: <laughs> Actually, you'd be surprised. Yeah. It's not. They're not terribly not off. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I can say going back, we're talking. You know, what's changed since 1967, and we have definitely seen an increase in the number and percentage of African American representatives and office holders in the House. And again, we're looking at the state legislature here. We could break this down along any political (laughs) level and uh, several dimensions. But in 1961, there were zero state senators who were African American. The House actually had a few. Uh, We went to a high uh, in the early 2000s after a dip in the 90s. There was kind of a steady increase and then a dip and then uh, a rise again. So we're not quite at the high now. The, The problem when we say the percentage changes, it's, one seat sometimes that makes a difference and so it's I got you know I we're not supposed to you know have opinions on our coverage here but I will (laughs) say I was a little surprised that it matched as closely as it did but the charts online let you look at the session um, the population uh, they're kind of fun to click around and they and they move and you can look at from session to session and year to year
0: yeah yeah well uh, we only have about uh, 45 seconds left and I won't get us into this conversation but maybe for another time I think one of the one of the interesting measures would be African-American office holders who are elected from majority white uh, uh, districts. I mean, that that's a different measure of power than, for instance, uh, African-Americans who are elected from the districts that have majority.
3: So uh, that sounds like homework for me, Stephen, <laughs> but I can tell you that. If you, into that right? <laughs> I did right? Well, I looked because I wanted to be clear on what the districts were, and there are several, and, and okay, so I will add to the post on WDET.org, <laughs> but there are several that have districts um, that not only represent Detroit, but m- I would say most of the border communities. Yeah. You get Downriver, uh, the Gross Points, uh, northern, uh, Southern Oakland County, actually is a totally Oakland County district that has an African-American representative or senator there now. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, Sandra Svoboda, Detroit by the numbers, thanks for coming in and uh, pointing us to the website for that information. Thank you. Uh, And I want to thank Mark Crewman and Stephen Ward. Mark is a professor of history at Wayne State. Stephen Ward is associate professor in the Social Theory and Practice Program at uh, U of M. Thank you guys both for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will This is 1019 WDT Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.